Well, it's a privilege and a joy uh, to be gathered with you. Uh, I send greetings from Tampa, Florida, and uh, from a, a church family there, Covenant Life, who has prayed for you in the past, who even this morning is praying for you. Uh, it's, it's a gift, even as Justin mentioned. It's a gift whenever we pastors have the privilege of meeting other pastors that uh, do us spiritual good. And I know you know this, uh, but your pastor, uh, your pastor's plural, in particular, Justin, has done me spiritual good over the years. And uh, it's a gift. Uh, long before I've ever seen you, I've heard a lot about you. Uh, I've prayed for you. And uh, I just want to remind you, even in conversations with all of the pastors this weekend. Your pastors love you. It is a gift whenever pastors insist on uh, right doctrine, but also walk that out in careful tenderness and shepherding. And I hope you recognize the gift of grace that you have in and through your pastors. And so to you, the church, I want to say thank you for caring for your pastors and supporting your pastors. Not every pastor in their post is a joy-filled pastor. And I'm thankful for congregations that are uh, joyful and that seek to encourage their pastors to be joy-filled. And so um, maybe, the, maybe one of the uh, sentiments that I would share with you about uh, your pastor, uh, in particular Justin, would just be I would gladly submit to his leadership. I would gladly put my family under his leadership. And so it really is a joy to be here with you this morning. Uh, each week, I receive magazines, I receive articles, I receive uh, emails uh, to various books and various websites that seek to answer the question, how does the church grow? And most of these books and resources and emails will try to encourage me as a pastor to think through innovative and See, this is how uninnovated I am. Uh, innovative I am. I'm trying to think of another word. Uh, but so we'll just stick with innovative. Uh, how to advance our numbers quickly. How to expand broadly. And yet I'm convinced that as helpful as some of those things are, what I don't hear a lot of are just the need and the call for pastors and for churches to have a greater perspective on the greatness of God. It's been said that people are starving for the greatness of God. And most of them wouldn't even give themselves that diagnosis. Uh, one of the ways that you can distinguish between those that follow and belong to Christ and those that do not are by following their values. Christians are those who long for God. Christians yearn for God. Christians are most satisfied in God. Christians prize God. They cherish God. They treasure God. They make it the aim of their life to glorify Him by enjoying Him supremely. I wonder this morning, do you believe that the heart posture of a Christian should be exactly that? That it's not only right thinking, though it's always right thinking, it's also reordered and renewed longings, yearnings. 
in the 1830s, Alexis de Tocqueville was commenting on America and he noted a strange melancholy that seems to haunt America, um, particularly in the midst of her abundance. Believing that prosperity could quench their yearnings for happiness, this is what de Tocqueville said. He said, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. The incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. And as I listen to de Tocqueville critique America, I can, I can peer into the church in America, even today, and see a strange melancholy that marks the people of God. I think because of the same root. Seeking to be most satisfied in incomplete joy. Things that can't fully satisfy. Things that can't bring us most joy. And for some of us, even in this room, the biggest threat to our yearning for more of God, our hunger for God, is simply this. Treasuring the incomplete joys of this life as though they can satisfy us completely. And so in the authority of the Word of God this morning, I want to call us, and I say us because I'm in need of this Word this morning, I want to call us to a fuller, a fuller, an all-satisfying joy by calling us to the all-satisfying God Himself. And so to that end, if you would join with me as we pray. Our gracious, holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we come to you now asking you to work out the purposes that are bound up in your word in us. And we want to behold Christ in and through the scriptures. Jesus would say that these scriptures testify to him. So help us do that. Help our boast be Christ. Help our joy be filled this morning because we long and yearn for more of you. And so I pray that you would make us what we're not and you would grow us where we lack. And I ask that you would do that through this sermon. And so may the sermon that is heard be far more effective than the one that is preached. Spirit, do your work, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open them to Psalm 63. Psalm 63, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8, 63, the large number. The smaller numbers, 1 through 8, will be the verses. This is one of the most well-loved psalms. Chrysostom said that it was decreed and ordained by the primitive church fathers that no day should pass without the public singing of this psalm. He said that the spirit and the soul of the whole book of the Psalms is contained into this one psalm. And it's interesting, this psalm, there's no petitions. The psalmist isn't asking God for anything. He's expressing his longing for God. He's wanting to make public his praise and his joy and his desire for more fellowship with God. He's wanting to make clear his confidence in God. Psalm 63 makes clear that David's priority was for more of God. And it's good for us to remember this morning that there is, there is nothing that has been created that is intended to give us more pleasure than God himself. Nothing. And so we aim then at being a people who are 
and who want to make disciples who delight most in God. This is who we want to be individually. This is who we want to be as a, a faith family, a church family. We want to collectively cry out what we heard read this morning, Psalm 27.4. One thing I have asked from the Lord. Think about that. If you could ask the Lord for one thing. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek. So I'm not just going to ask it. I'm going to give my life to seeking it. What is that? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Psalm 27 just captures for us this longing. I want to be with God. To behold the beauty of the Lord. I want to fixate my gaze upon God and to meditate in His temple. I want to live with you. I want to know you. I want to think on you. This hunger, this yearning for more of God. I wonder this morning if that longing is even remotely close to where your heart is this morning. Do you long to be with your God? What a privilege that we have to be united and to commune and to fellowship with God. So easy after walking with the Lord for a while to just sort of take that for granted and begin to think that walking with the Lord somehow is a a set of burdens that are sort of laid over us and to miss the invitation of joy that we have in walking and knowing our God. Maybe, literally, maybe just in the intro, you're sitting here thinking, oh boy. Like, I showed up and my life is a complete wreck. And I, I show up and we hear from just somebody who's not even a pastor here, and then he's going to talk about how God is everything satisfying. This is the a recipe for either a lot of uh, guilt or, or a lot of hurry up and be done. I hope it's neither of those things. Maybe it would serve us to just read the superscription of Psalm 63. It reads a Psalm of David while he was in the wilderness of Judah. First and second Samuel tells us that two times David found himself in the wilderness in Judah. One is running from King Saul. The other was running and hiding, fleeing while he was king from his son Absalom, seeking to lead a revolt against his father. If you were to read down in Psalm 63, you would see in verse 11 that he talks about how he is the king. So it seems to be Psalm 63 was written by David while he's on the run for his life from his son. And so I share that to just remind you this morning that David is not writing this during a time of peace and prosperity. This isn't a psalm that's only for those whose days are roses and and singing. No, he's removed from his throne. He's removed from power. He's separated from the temple. He's not in a place of peace and prosperity. Every prop has been kicked out from under him. And perhaps you feel that way this morning. Good news. There's a God that longs to be the satisfaction of your soul.
Not just when it's easy, but when you need it most. And so it's in these circumstances that David writes Psalm 63, and I pray that we would feel the weight of two invitations in Psalm 63. Those two invitations will be the sermon points this morning. Number one, God is to be our deepest desire. God is to be our deepest desire. I just want you to listen again to verses uh, 1 and 2. Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. You know what's at the heart of this psalm? At the heart of this psalm is David's trust and confidence in the you-I relationship that David had with his God. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, over there you're him, but you are my God. The, the pronouns make all the difference in this psalm. The relationship between God and David is at the heart of this psalm, and it's at the heart of his devotion. And this relationship was set in 2 Samuel chapter 7. When God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so if you were to go back, and I would encourage you maybe even to do this this afternoon, if you were to read Psalm 63 and just put, an, put the accent mark over all the U's and listen to how you can, almost, you can almost feel how tangibly, discernibly, acheful, his soul is for more of God. The relationship that the Bible describes between Christians and their God is one in which God is always the end of the relationship. God is never in the relationship so as to serve the other. He's the one that's meant to be served. God is not a means to another end. And sadly, many in the Christian life even think that God exists to make much of them. But verse 1 says, oh, no, no, oh, God, you are my God. And my longing is for you. He longs, he yearns for the God that he belongs to. He's seeking this God. It's God that his life has centered upon and because of this, then it's, 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 it's a no-brainer that his inner passion is not merely to get things from God. That's interesting. He's on the run literally for his life from his son, and he, and he pins this cry. And it's not a cry of, Lord, do this. God, give me this. It's in the middle of the, one of the hardest circumstances I'm walking in. I want more of you. I long for you. ache in his soul is palpable. I'm convicted, even as I study this, just asking, Justin, where are the aches in your soul? Do you ache for more of God? And I want to be clear, I'm not talking about like a, a positional truth where uh, somehow if, if I'm a Christian, I don't have all of God. And I have, No, no, no. Positionally, I have everything I need. 
But in practice, I find myself chasing lesser incomplete joys. And I want my practice to match with my position. I want the Christian life to close this gap. And I'm, I'm convicted, I'm challenged by David's yearning. He longs to seek God earnestly. I mean, he makes that clear 12 times in this psalm. He's not merely hoping that his circumstances will help him drift along and sort of somehow stumble upon God. He says, no, 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 I will earnestly seek you. I'm diligently searching you out. That's not just the stated desire, that's an action. And he continues by speaking of this thirsting soul, this yearning flesh. David is literally looking out into a, a, a land that is dry. There's, there's not, it's the opposite of Psalm 63, the, uh, Psalm 23, the green pastures there. That's not what he sees. He's in a wilderness. It's waterless. It's greenless. In that scenario, what he's experiencing physically launches him into considering his God. He sees there's no water here. Look at where I find myself. And that leads him to be compelled to say, I, too, am yearning and thirsty. I'm parched. My soul thirsts for more of you. I wonder this morning if the pain and the loss that you are walking through, the difficulty that you're experiencing, I wonder if those are opportunities that you leverage to seek more of Him. Acts 17 reminds us that God has set up every aspect of your life so that you would seek Him. Every aspect. Meaning the days where you barely can get to the end of the day feeling like you're keeping your sanity. That has been allowed to come your way so that you would seek Him all the more. It's the language of Psalm 42 as the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. This, this deep longing. John Calvin said that there are some people who are religious on the exterior, but they lack a true knowledge, a true saving knowledge. The closer that they are to religious ceremonies, the more spiritual that they feel, and the more they seem to long after God. But when you remove them from the ceremonies, their zeal for God vanishes. And David is saying, you can remove me from the ceremony, but my zeal and my longing and my hunger for God, it intensifies. Calvin would go on to say, not so for David. His heart still, perhaps even more, longs for God. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Pursuit of God, put it this way, you come near to the holy men and women of the past and you will soon feel the heat of their desire for God. They mourn for Him. They pray and they wrestle and they seek Him day and night, in season and out of season. And when they have found Him, the finding is all the more sweet because of the looking. Tozer says complacency is a deadly foe for all spiritual growth. As I was thinking, just Justin, why is it that you struggle with this intensified, focused longing for more of God? I came up with just three things, even in my own heart, and talking to 
members of our church and share them with you, maybe even to just be an example for you to allow the Spirit to search your hearts. What is it that's keeping you from from longing most, desiring God more than anything else? First thing I thought about was just how distracted my heart is. Entertaining myself, amusing myself to death, in part covering up the longing that's within my soul. We get uncomfortable with the ache, we get uncomfortable with the silence, we get uncomfortable with the alone time with God, and so we seek to just busy and distract our hearts. Tim Keller says that the thirst of the soul is the deep restlessness that you feel. Christians understand that that restlessness is because they need to be in right relationship with God. He says non-Christians, though, will not even see it as a thirst. Though they find themselves going from broken cistern to broken cistern, unable to fully identify and satisfy the thirst. Don't be content to keep your heart distracted this morning. Second thing I've thought about is just small desires. And this is sort of a, this is flipped up upside down a little bit. You can think, why do I not long for and desire God most? Small desires. I don't know if we can talk about desire without quoting C.S. Lewis. And so I'm not going to do it. I don't want to be the first. C.S. Lewis says, if I find myself a if I find in myself a desire in which no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. It doesn't mean that this world is a fraud. It means that this world is meant to arouse a longing for me to search somewhere else. And C.S. Lewis says we are far too easily satisfied. And some people that I know think that well, I enjoy my sin, and so therefore I have a pleasure problem. And so my, my problem is that I need to decrease my pleasures in order to make it right. No, we often have a pleasure problem, not merely because we enjoy sin too much, but because we don't enjoy God enough. You and I were meant to glorify God by enjoying Him. And as C.S. Lewis will say, instead of focusing on and delighting most in the giver of the gifts, which he calls the vacation at the sea, he says we become content to toy around with our trinkets as the ultimate end in and of themselves. He calls those mud pies in the slum. And so why not longing for God? Because our hearts are distracted, because we're, we're far too easily pleased. And then number three, because idols in our lives are precious. Because sin seems to be better to us than what we have to wait for to receive by foregoing the temptation. Those are my reasons. What about you? Why do you not desire God more than everything in this life? And I wonder this morning if that's even a conviction. Like, are you okay? You're okay to desire God a little. You don't want to be fanatical. So I'm okay to desire Him a little, but I don't want to get carried away. I pray that you, like me, would follow the example of David and say, actually, fullness of life is found when, he de when we desire Him most. 
and it, I think it's interesting if you just look at again at verse 2, what David recalls that's fueling this yearning for God is that he, he had an experience in the sanctuary. One of the means of grace that helps fuel our desire and our longing for God is seeing His power and His glory that's uniquely displayed in the gathering of His people. God used the gathering to fan and to flame this longing. David is writing from the wilderness. He has really nothing around him to draw on that would lead him to desire God most, but he has the memories of what it was like to be in the sanctuary gathered with the saints worshiping God. I recently read a, an article warning Christians from looking past Sunday morning because they can seem so mundane, so ordinary. And David reminds us, even in Psalm 63, we don't look past Sunday mornings because in the gathering of the saints, we are uniquely, not, not exclusively, but we uniquely behold His power and His glory in the assembly. And while He's in the wilderness, He was served by remembering His time in the sanctuary. God has always uniquely blessed the gathering, the regular gathering of His people with visions of His glory and visions of His power, experiences of His glory, experiences of His power, through the ordinary means of grace, praying, singing, preaching, reading. And so I pray that you would find yourself in a place, even being confronted with the fact that God ought be your greatest desire if you indeed belong to Him. gather with your church family just having your soul fattened on the goodness of God and you come together with other people who are just coming in fattened gluttoned all week on the goodness of God and we come together and, and, and our, our experience together it's, we would say that the Christian life we, we, have, we have one life to live and James tells us that it's going to be like a vapor, here today, gone tomorrow. And so we want to grab everything we can that is ours in Christ, and we want to live upon that sufficiency. And we want to be a people who say, I'm not letting go of you until I'm fully satisfied in you. I wonder if you could have it all. And yet not have God. Would you still want it all? David's prayer seems to be, take it all, as long as I have God, that's all I need, you are my God, I yearn for you, is that your prayer, leads us to the second point, not only is God to be our greatest desire, but number two, God is to satisfy us most do you see the difference it's not just that we desire God but it's that we're most satisfied in God and really this just unfolds in verses 3 through 8 because your steadfast love is better than life 
my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. David's not after just, I want the right desires. David says, no, no, I want the right desires, but I also want to be satisfied most by the one I desire most for. And the good news this morning is that if you and I will set our desires, uh, to set our hearts to desire everything in God, we will find that He will deliver. You see, this world right now is baiting you. It's tempting you. It's fishing for you. It's holding out promises that if you will give yourself to the things of this world, you will be most satisfied. And yet, their mark, sin, the world's marketing department, is outrunning its manufacturing department. It's promising you something that it can't deliver. All the while, there is one who is sufficient for everything that you need for joy-filled living, for satisfied to the fullest. I love what Hudson Taylor says in his little pamphlet that he wrote, The Days of Blessing. He said, A man may divide the contents of his purse among a number of people, but over time, the contents of his purse are going to run out. He said, but God does not bless us in Christ this way. He said, God gives each one to enjoy him fully. Hudson Taylor says that this truth was such a help to him, this blessed truth that Jesus brings us into his treasury, and all the treasures are there in him, undivided for us to enjoy. Hudson Taylor says there is enough satisfaction and sufficiency that's found in God and that's clearly seen. He gives us His, His Son. He gives us Christ. There is enough sufficiency and satisfaction in Christ for every one of us, for every Christian in this world, to go to Him and to take and take and take, and He never runs dry. He is completely sufficient to satisfy every soul of His people. If everyone in the world turned to Him, there would still be enough to satisfy every soul in this world. It's crazy to think then that we go to these cisterns, really, that are broken and can't hold water when the all-sufficient One who supplies everything we need for life and godliness is available through Christ. Think about this. David may well be killed in the night as he's writing this. Verse 6, I remember you upon my bed and I meditate on you in the watches of the night. David could be killed in the night by a traitor. He could be killed in the night by his son. And the question that I have for a man like this that's on the run is how in the world do you sleep? How can you sleep when you're being hunted? I would want to stay awake. 
I think the only way that you can rest in this scenario is that, when, is that you have found something that was better than life itself. You remind yourself that the love of God is better than not being stabbed to death in the night. It's what Psalm 73 says when the psalmist says, the nearness of God is my good. And so David can say, as I'm on the run, and I don't even know if I'm going to make it through the night, as long as I have God, I have the good life. This is the good life. And we look at this and we go, this is a terrible life. He has his God. And he understands that life with God is the good life. Look at verse 3. Because of your loving, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. David wanted God more than he wanted life. As one pastor would say, let's be clear about what this means. If you want God more than you want life, then you want God more than you want all the joys of this life. You want God more than you want your family, more than you want your health, more than you want your food, your friendships, your sexual relations and your marriage, your job, your satisfaction, your productivity, your books, your music, your art, your sunsets, your architecture, your hobbies. And I want to be clear, those, are, those can be really good things. Those are gifts that God has given us, not so that we would find our all in all in those gifts, but that we would follow the hand and the arm of the giver of those gifts, and we would say, even though you give me this, you are what I want. I long for more of you. Praise God for good things that come to us from God, but they pale in comparison to the glory and the goodness of the giver. And perhaps one of the reasons that so many within the church are frustrated and, disappointment and disappointed with their experience with God is because they love the things of the Christian life more than they love the God of the Christian life. And God has made it clear, cover to cover, He will not share His glory with another. I mean, as I read Psalm 63, it makes me wonder if even this I wonder if one of the gracious purposes for wilderness times in our lives is to do in us what that, this wilderness time is doing in David. It's stripping everything else away from him so that his propensity would be to lean in on God more than anything else. And perhaps then what that means is what you and I can often charge God for in being unloving and uncaring is the most loving and caring thing he could do by stripping everything else away and leaving us with the one thing that we need him remember that vision of his glory from the gathering tasting him there served his soul to remember him in the wilderness so you may not feel that the regular gathering with God's people is doing much in the moment but but brothers and sisters rest assured that it is you regularly gathering together here gospeling yourself and gospeling one another singing truth and praying truth and sitting under truth it is serving your soul for moments when God allows wilderness times to come into your life and he takes you to the wilderness so that you will be reminded that you don't need a different set of circumstances 
that he's good and he's faithful with you in whatever ones he places you in. No verse in the psalm best captures the satisfied souls of David like verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. The text literally reads, with fat and fatness. <laughs> he uses the same word to, to display this, I'm so content, I'm completely satisfied. If, 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 something is, if we are satisfied, then there's no room for anything else. And he's saying, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and fatness. He's on the run for his life, and in that experience, he says, I'm satisfied. We live in a, in a health-conscious day where we read this verse and we go, ooh, gross, fat, and nobody likes it. Fat was the best part of the meat. Some of you would say it still is the best part of the meat. It's the best-tasting portion of the meat. And David says, my soul is satisfied with God as the best portion of my Psalm 36 would say that we take refuge in the feast of the abundance of his house. And he says, for with you are the fountains of life. I wonder this morning, are you that kind of satisfied in your Savior? Do we desire him? Are we most satisfied? Are you drinking of that abundance? I mean, think about it. He can't do anything else to make himself more satisfied. When will we be compelled to run to him as the one who satisfies most? What else do we learn about a soul that's most satisfied in God? Listen again. Just listen, three through eight. My lips will praise you. I will lift up my hands in your name. My mouth offers praise with joyful lips. I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the night watches. I sing for joy. Each of those outward expressions are the fruit that grows out of the root of being most satisfied in God. And so again, a, just a good diagnostic this morning. What is the fruit that's coming out of your life, and what does that say about your satisfaction in God? One of the things I pray for most is, God, would you allow the gap between what I know and how I live to close? And perhaps here, no greater place that I need the gap to close between how I'm pursuing satisfaction and how I understand God to be the one who's most satisfying. And this was God's aim from the beginning. The public, visible covering of the earth with the glory of his praise. Church, this is what satisfied hearts do. They sing to the glory of his praise. They speak to the glory of his praise. Delighted hearts do lift up their hands because he's worthy of praise. Full hearts do remember him because no other topic of thought compares to remembering him. There are discernible differences that ought to be evident to people around you because of your great delight. 
If you're interested in continuing to just feast on this, I would encourage you to even look later today or later this week at verses 9 through 12 in Psalm 63. And you'll, you'll, you'll see how David makes clear that God is to be our most trusted defense. So not only is He to be our greatest desire, not only are we to be satisfied most in Him, but 9 through 12 will talk about how He is to be our most trusted defense. And so really I could say that the sermon comes down this morning to two questions. Is God your deepest desire? And secondly, are you most satisfied in Him? Perhaps you're saying, Justin, I'm not there. I'm not there and I want to be there. How do I get there? The starting point, again, it's the personal pronouns that David uses. I wonder this morning, have you made the God who is all-satisfying your God? Maybe a better way of saying it is, have you surrendered to the God who is all-satisfying in His pursuit of even a wayward, rebellious, undeserving, sinner has he moved out of the realm of truthful fact into the realm of trusted savior and what it is that's worth most to you is what you worship and worship fuels how you act worship is the driving force in all that we do and the bible makes clear that we are not those that seek god romans 3 the bible also makes clear that we were born into not worshiping a worshipful relationship with God, but into a rebellious, a broken relationship with God. And so that, po that poses a problem for us. So God is either going to force us to do something, force us in making us something, or He's going to do something for us. And in great mercy and grace, God, before the foundations of the world, chose the latter. He would send His Son. And His Son would come. And His Son would please the Father at every turn. He would earn what you and I could never earn, the favor of God. And the reward for that wasn't the reward that Jesus had to endure. Because at the end of His life, He hangs suspended between earth and heaven upon a cross, enduring the wrath of the Father, which is the right and just punishment for sins. Sins that He didn't commit. Well, then why in the world, if He earned the Father's favor, does He die this type of death? And the Bible makes clear that He does it as a substitute. In great love, so people who ruined the opportunity to have their souls most satisfied in the God who created them and the God whom they are accountable to, Christ has done for us what we could never do in giving us a righteousness that allows us to stand before Him having our slate clean and dying, removing the penalty of that sin through the shedding of His blood. And you say, Justin, that sounds pretty good. 
But that sort of leads me to where every other religion leads me, and that is to a religious figure who's dead in the grave. Not so, my friend. Because on the third day, this one, unparalleled, the most majestic one, rises triumphantly from the grave, showing that even, even the enemies of sin and death, he holds the keys to them in his hands. They serve him. He doesn't serve them. And so the good news this morning, if you are not a Christian, is that while you do stand deserving of wrath from God in great grace through faith, there is a way out. There is a way out. If you will turn from your sin and you will trust in the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ, that sinless life, that death as a substitute, that bodily resurrection, if you will turn and trust, then that work will be credited to you. Your sin falls upon Christ. That's what the reformers would call the great exchange. Christ's righteousness placed off of him and placed onto me. And my sin placed off of me and placed on to him. And this isn't just about believing something for today. This is about leaning into a joy and fountains of satisfaction that never run dry. If you're not a Christian this morning, I would plead with you. The invitation is there. It doesn't matter how you walked into this service thinking about God. It matters what you do with the message that you've heard today. This church is filled with people who would love to talk with you about that. If you're here and you're, you don't, you're not in Christ, you have questions about that, talk with any of the pastors. Talk with the friend that brought you. The good news this morning is that you can have life abundant. You can have a life that doesn't have to keep going to this world for a satisfaction that this world can't provide. You can come and feast on this God who, whether you realize it or not, is your greatest and deepest desire and is able to satisfy and to fill you most completely. And if you're a Christian and you're struggling this morning, you find yourself sort of veering off and saying, man, I want this, but almost on a day-to-day basis I find myself not living here. I just want to encourage you of the good news. You need the gospel. You need the gospel today just like you needed it the day that you first believed. You need the gospel today because here's the reality is that none of us in this room belonging to Christ, none of us desire God as we ought. And none of us are most satisfied in Him as we ought to be. And so where we can't answer, is God my deepest desire? Am I most satisfied in Him? Where we honestly have to say, no, I'm not. We need the gospel because Jesus says, yes, God is my deepest desire. Jesus said, it's not my will, but thy will be done. He desired perfectly for you and I. And he was most satisfied in his Father for you and I. 
And so good news this morning, it's not just that the gospel is good news for those who need it for the first time. No, the gospel is for those of us who woke up this morning who realized very quickly, I'm desiring a host of other things other than the God who's worthy of my everything. And the good news is that even on days where we fail, we have a Savior who does say, I can answer that in the affirmative. And my answer it's credited to your account. And that doesn't give us license then to just be careless and, well, it doesn't matter. But that frees us from feeling like we have to earn something that he's already provided. God has so wired you and I that we would find our everything in him. And even when we don't, he's so provided. He's provided Christ to be able to to give us what it is that we lack. And so if I could just close by encouraging you with, I think, three just practical, how then, I'm a Christian, how do I fan this into flame? I think Psalm 63 really just shows us, just in the structure of the psalm, three reminders of ways in which we can fan into flame. This, a heart that's thinking about, a mind or a mind that's thinking about a heart that's seeking to, des to desire God most and to love him. Number one is to just pray. If you find that your desires and what you pursue are nowhere close to this, I would just encourage you to pray. Psalm 63 is a cry to God. And so don't miss that. One of the greatest defenses to ensuring that our first love doesn't grow cold or that we lose the childlike awe and wonder is through white-hot prayer. You and I have capacities for joy as Christians, which we scarcely know in large part because we don't labor for them in prayer. And so, brothers, sisters, ask Him. Seek for Him as though He is indeed the treasure that's hidden in the field that you're willing to give up everything for. So pray. Secondly, Intake God's Word. Intake God's Word. Psalm 27, 4. I just, one thing that I want, I want to be with you. I want to meditate. I want to inquire of you in your temple. What does it mean to meditate? It doesn't mean what the sort of Eastern mysticism today means. It doesn't mean we empty ourselves of, of everything within us so that there's nothing. No, meditating means we fill ourselves with truth about Him and we just sort of like sort of like a good steak that just sits and marinates all day. We marinate in the truth of His Word. And so I pray that you would just feast on God's Word. Know the God of the Word. You want your love for God to rise? You want your desire for God to rise? Then get your eyes on God in and through His Word. The psalmist says, I found your words and I ate them because they were better to me than life itself they're more precious to me than gold man i know if someone rolls up into my neighborhood and says i've got a truck truckload full of gold who wants it man i'm i'm pushing kids down to get to that thing and yet this sits in close proximity and I'm not trying to create a false dichotomy that says if you have a bar of gold or whatever. What I'm trying to say is that this has to be precious. 
And it's only as we give ourselves to this that we will begin to have the type of desires that the Word holds out for us that ought to mark us. And then the last thing is just gather. Don't neglect the gathering of the saints. Don't minimize what God desires to do in and through the gathering of His people. And you may wake up and go, man, I don't know why I should go. You may even leave, perhaps today, and say, I don't know if I got anything out of that. I just want you to know, it wasn't until David was in the wilderness that he began to draw on the riches of being in the sanctuary. And so I adapted this from John Piper, and so I just share it with you, and this is how I close. I dream of a church service unlike, utterly unlike any other hour and a half throughout the week. A weekly corporate appointment with the living God and a room filled with people who from the bottom of their hearts say with David, Oh God, you are my God, earnestly we seek you. I dream about a gathering of people who love the conversations of Christian friendship, but who for the sake of the depth of that conversation are willing to give it up so that they can come together, even during the song of preparation, to bow in unashamed earnestness towards the Spirit of God so that He would meet with us. I dream of a gathered family of believers on Sunday morning who are genuinely happy in God as families are on the first day of their vacation or as children are beside the Christmas tree when gifts are being handed out. How unfettered hearts of joy together begin to say amen when the congregation has carried us to God in song or when the prayers prayed align our hearts with his or when the preacher speaks some incomparable gospel truth. I dream of 90 minutes together where, where grudges melt and old festering wounds are healed in the warmth of the joy of the Lord. A church service with God where battered saints absorb the strength and the power of their Lord to re-enter their work revived and strong on Monday. I dream of a people who gather together hungry to hear the word of God and to make a joyful noise to the God of their salvation with song and who sing to stir up one another's faith. I dream of a church service during the week where we encounter God together in such a real and unmistakable way that strangers enter and they say, surely God is in this place. Faith Bible, imagine, imagine what happens when your greatest desire and what satisfies you most is God and you come together with other saints and that's true of them. There is, there is no telling how the Lord by His Spirit would see fit to use that type of church in this type of city. And I just want to remind you this morning, it's worth it and He's worth it. Everything that he asks of you, he has required. Everything he requires of you, he has provided for you. And so I pray that you, much like our church, would be the kind of disciples who display God's glory by being and making disciples who delight most in God. Let's pray. Our holy God, we approach your throne as your word has gone forth I pray that you would give us clarity on how we ought to respond and so I ask that your spirit would bring about conviction your spirit would bring about encouragement your spirit would bring, bring about 
repentance. Help us know how to best walk out what it is that we've heard. And help us not merely think about this individually. Help us think how we encourage brothers and sisters in our faith family to walk out what we have just heard. So even as we prepare to sing again, I just pray that you would make clear what does an adequate response look like? And how might, how might we not walk away thinking we've learned something new? How might we walk away thinking we're asking you to change us and make us anew? And so for your glory, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.